Hello. Before you start this episode of The Game Changes, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about our new documentary, Abby Ward, A Bump in the Road, which explores the challenges faced by professional female athletes and all working mothers. It follows the remarkable journey of an England rugby player as she battles back to the professional game just 17 weeks after the birth of her baby and then on to secure her place in England's Six Nations squad for 2024. The documentary is free to watch in the UK on ITVX or globally on Rugby Pass TV. And don't forget that our other documentary, Game On! The Unstoppable Rise of Women's Sport, is still available to watch on Netflix in the UK. Now it's time for the Game Changers. Hello and welcome to The Game Changers, the podcast that celebrates trailblazing women in sport. I'm Sue Anstis and I'd like to start with a big thank you to our partners Sport England, who support The Game Changers through a National Lottery Award. I'm delighted to say that this, the 13th season of the podcast, is a serialisation of my book, Game On, The Unstoppable Rise of Women's Sport. Chapter 5. It's a sellout. The whole idea that there is no demand to watch women play sport is the biggest fallacy that has been sold to us. It is not something that occurred naturally. It is something that occurred because of the active suppression and eradication of women from a sporting landscape. Moya Dodd First Woman on the FIFA Council, The Game Changers Podcast 2020. Looking back to those extraordinary crowds in the 1920s, where over 50,000 people paid to watch women's football in England, it's little wonder that people like Moya Dodd call out the naysayers who comment that there will never be an audience for women's sport. Similar-sized crowds would gather across Italy and France to watch women's professional football in the 1980s, but it's taken decades for the numbers of spectators flocking to watch women's sport in the UK to get back to those levels. And then, only sporadically, at major events. Some women's sports, including tennis, track and field, cycling and triathlon, have always attracted similar crowds and spectators to the men's, especially when the events are combined. But team sports, traditionally the preserve of men, have been slower into this space. Women's football has certainly been the trailblazer in this area in recent years, perhaps no surprise for the world's biggest sport. And being the most popular global game means the success in football has rippled out to bring commercial opportunities for all women's sports. Attracting spectators and fans is essential if women's sport is to grow and develop. Not only are spectators an income source through ticket and merchandise sales, but packed crowds make for a good visual spectacle, which in turn attracts TV channels and broadcasters. In terms of attracting spectators, 2019 was a real turning point for women's football. The continuing growth in the popularity of women's football in Spain saw records broken for a women's club game when 60,000 fans watched Barcelona beat Atletico Madrid at the Wanda Metropolitano in March 2019. 
Earlier that year, a crowd of over 48,000 had gathered for Athletic Bilbao's cup game against Atletico Madrid at the San Main Stadium in Bilbao. In Mexico, La Liga MX Femenal has set the previous crowd record for a professional women's football match in May 2018, when 51,000 came to watch rivals Rayadas and Tigres Femenil. In the USA, the Women's Soccer League was also breaking records, with one of the largest stadiums, Portland Thorns Providence Park, hosting nine of the top ten highest attended games in the league's history. Four of those games took place after the FIFA 2019 World Cup. And in August 2019, Portland Thorns hosted North Carolina Courage in front of a record crowd of 25,000. Two months later, they attracted the second biggest crowd in NWSL history when they played Washington Spirit in front of 24,500 fans. And then in the summer, despite some issues around ticket sales, 57,900 fans watched the USA beat the Netherlands 2-0 in the final of the FIFA 2019 World Cup at the Stade de Lyon. Great numbers, but still a long way from the biggest attendance at any women's game set at the 1999 World Cup final when 90,000 fans watched the USA beat China at the Rose Bowl Stadium in LA. The game ended with a nail-biting penalty shootout that the USA won 5-4. Here at home, the Barclays FA Women's Super League opened in September 2019 with a record-breaking crowd of 31,000 at the Etihad Stadium to see Manchester City take on Manchester United. The following day, I was lucky enough to be in the crowd at Stamford Bridge to see Chelsea beat Spurs 1-0 in front of 24,500 fans. The atmosphere was incredible. Later that same month, 77,768 packed Wembley Stadium to watch England's women play Germany in a friendly, close to the crowd of 80,203 who had flocked to the same stadium during London 2012 to see the USA beat Japan. It isn't just football that saw growth in crowds in 2019. In Australia, women's leagues such as the Rebel Women's Big Bash and the Women's Australian Rules Football League began to attract large audiences along with more sponsorship deals and broadcast revenue. Having watched my first AFLW game in Sydney in 2019, I can fully appreciate why the sport draws such big crowds. What a spectacle it is. Fast, powerful and incredibly physical. The ICC Women's World Cup final in July 2017 was a sellout when a crowd of 24,000 filled Lords to watch England beat India by just nine runs, a thrilling game and one of the closest finals in the tournament's history. Again, there was an extraordinary atmosphere at Lords that day. Then, in March 2020, the T20 World Cup final smashed the women's cricket attendance record at the Melbourne Cricket Ground with an attendance of over 86,000 watching Australia beat India. The 2019 Netball World Cup in Liverpool sold a record-breaking 112,000 tickets for the event and rugby, too, has seen growing numbers of spectators for the women's game. 
In the first game of the Six Nations in 2020, 14,000 watched France versus England in Poe and then 11,000 came to the Twickenham Stoop for England versus Wales. Just two years before, there had only been 4,000 at the corresponding fixture at the same venue. Red Roses games at Sandy Park and Exeter have shown there is a huge appetite for the women's game. There was an extraordinary atmosphere in the crowd when England played Italy in March 2019 with 10,545 tickets sold, a record attendance outside a World Cup. Clubs like Harlequins, playing in the Premier 15s, have been regularly attracting crowds of over 4,000 for their big games. Smaller numbers than the men's games, but showing considerable growth. Here's hoping that if England rugby successfully bid to host the 2025 World Cup, we might see a sellout at Twickenham in the way we have for the Lionesses at Wembley. Driving the size of crowds is high on the agenda for those working in women's sport, although in the era of COVID, this has clearly been a challenge for everyone. Understanding who makes up the crowd for women's sport is interesting. Anecdotal evidence says the crowds for women's sport includes more families and females, but more research is needed in this area if we are to build further to impact the numbers. Understandably, there has been a pushback from those working in women's sport to the assumption that it is just women who are the potential audience for women's sport. Ultimately, their goal is to have men and women watching women's sport, especially as men are currently the biggest audience for sport. Clubs like Manchester United, Chelsea, Harlequins and Saracens have worked hard to encourage their existing male fans to also embrace their women's teams. In 2018, Manchester City launched Same City, Same Passion, a club-wide campaign that focused on promoting the women's game by demonstrating that the same skills, excitement and passion exist wherever the ball is kicked. Misconceptions about the professionalism and quality of women's football still exist and that needs to change. Same City, Same Passion aims to highlight that the similarities between men's and women's football are far greater than the differences and, regardless of who's playing, it's just football, said Omar Barada, the club's chief operating officer. Although around 15% of Premier League football fans are female, Historically, women have been less likely to watch sport, primarily because they have less leisure time than men. In many homes, women pick up the majority of unpaid work, including the household chores, childcare and caring for elderly relatives. Because of this, in the UK, men enjoy nearly five hours more leisure time every week than women, and the difference is particularly pronounced at weekends a time when men might be attending live sports events or watching their favourite teams on TV. So, men have been the default target audience. But, as society shifts and we see more balance in the sharing of support in the home, it could be that attracting women to watch will be key to the growth of women's sport. I've been lucky enough to attend a number of Netball Internationals and Netball Super League events over the past decade And the passion and noise emanating from a crowd of women and girls is something quite exceptional to behold. Other attempts to attract new fans for women's sport have come in the form of showcasing the women's game alongside the men's. The RFU has tried this with varying degrees of success by hosting double headers and having the Red Roses play either before or after men's internationals at Twickenham. 
I've attended a few, and whilst I appreciate the best intentions of having the women run out after the men's, and potentially getting the game seen by 70,000 spectators, it must be soul-destroying for the female players to watch the crowd rapidly dwindle away until only a few thousand are left in the stands by the end of their game. Putting the women first as a curtain-raiser has to be the better option, but I've been told there are issues around the women spoiling the pitch. Seriously? Ahead of the men's game, and their presence restricting the big game build-up and interviews for TV. Having the women on after the men also means the RFU can offer free or very cheap tickets for fans of the women's game to attend after the men's game, which they would not be able to do if they were playing first. With either option, it's a pretty long afternoon of sport and drinking for anyone who wants to watch both games. Having the women's games stand alone is something that has worked for other sports and as women's rugby has grown in popularity, it does seem that this approach is working. If it goes ahead at all in 2021, the women's six nations will be separated from the men's. It will be interesting to see how successful this format is and whether having its own time in the sporting calendar and not being tagged onto the men's games will be better for the profile of the women's championship. It's something that's occurred because of COVID, but might turn out to be much better for the women's game in the long term. Another issue in the 2020 season was that all the women's games started at the same time. So aside from the fact that you'd struggle to find many of them on TV, even if you could, you couldn't watch them all without multiple screens on the go. The ambition around attendance at major women's sports events and fixtures is also something that's up for debate. Shocking is how one industry expert described the England women's cricket venue selection post-World Cup, with the team not returning to play at Lords or the Oval. The original women's Euro venues showed a distinct lack of ambition to fill the biggest grounds in the country for crowds wanting to watch the Lionesses or other top European teams play. Similarly, it was hugely disappointing to see England's fixture against Ireland in the 2019 Six Nations taking place at Castle Park in Derby, a ground with a capacity of just 5,000, when previous England women's internationals had enjoyed attendances of over 10,000. For the WSL, the challenge has been translating the fantastic numbers for opening games often played in the big-name stadiums, to ongoing numbers throughout the season. I was shocked to learn the average attendance for FA WSL games in 2018 had been around 1,000, although when the season was terminated in early 2020, the average had reached nearer 3,500. Kelly Simmons at the FA was thrilled with the way 2020 started, though. Opening games of the season smashed all records with average attendances around 10,000 versus 900 or so in 2018. So we're 250% up and we are absolutely thrilled. How have we done this? We've worked really hard to make sure we pull through some of that interest and engagement in the Women's World Cup. We really focus on the calendar 
which is obviously challenging because there is so much men's football and sometimes we can't avoid it, but we focus on putting our biggest games in the best slots. We focus on the FIFA men's windows when there's no Premier League and work with the clubs to put big games in men's stadiums. We have seen some phenomenal attendances. I'll never forget going to Tottenham versus Arsenal. It was about 28,000 and you could hear the atmosphere. You've got the Arsenal fans chanting down one end and the Spurs fans singing at the other and it looked incredible. That's what we can deliver. We've done it at Stamford Bridge and the Etihad. We have really amplified those big games and invested in what we call Big Games Bigger, trying to keep up profile and build attendances. We had a big women's football weekend where we smashed all records again that was deliberately put when there was no men's football on. I think one of the really pleasing things is some of the big games in the women's stadiums sell out. Arsenal and Chelsea particularly have started to sell out some of their bigger games, which gives us new and interesting challenges. A great problem to have. I asked Lionesses and Manchester City captain Steph Horton what she felt could be done to increase the numbers of spectators for the women's games in the WSL. We need to try and find a regular slot when all the games are played. I appreciate that sometimes for television purposes the game's timings are changed. But when these games get changed late on, it's hard for fans to adjust when they are going to watch the games. Obviously, it is hard with the men as well in terms of the clashes with their games. But we can promote them so much better and we can get them out there, really push them hard as much as we possibly can. It's more an issue of people knowing when the game is than if they want to actually come. Tickets are cheap enough. Manchester City fans have got a lot of opportunity to come and watch the women play. We play exactly the same as the men in an unbelievable stadium with great pre-match entertainment. It's more a matter of trying to get people to the game. Once they're there, they enjoy it. Former England player Eniola Aluko agrees. Now director of women's football at Aston Villa, Eni was playing at Juventus for a record-breaking game in 2019, which attracted almost 40,000 fans. I asked her how we could increase the size of crowds for women's football, and she said it's all about people sampling the women's game. A marketing strategy is needed. It's a risk but it's needed because you've got to be able to give people exposure, a taster. I use the analogy of sometimes when you go to a market and somebody gives you a taster of food and you taste it and that's what makes you want to buy it. Not because you were thinking of buying it before. That's the way I kind of see women's football. That you need to get the masses to taste it first and then they'll come. How you get them to taste it is up to you. Free tickets or very cheap tickets, it really doesn't matter. In Juventus's case, it was a top-of-the-table clash and a title decider. Juventus versus Fiorentina. Juventus is very much a club where people turn up to go on tour in the masses, so people see it as a stadium experience. That said, 
Any is wary of putting too much pressure on the women's game in the early years of its development in the UK. I think we need to remove this pressure of selling out stadiums. Sometimes men's stadiums don't sell out. We are putting so much pressure on the women's game. It's like we've got to get there. No, let's see the progress. Let's celebrate 25,000 people coming today. Because five years ago, 25,000 people wouldn't have come. Smaller crowds for the women's games do mean that spectators are able to enjoy a far more fulfilling fan experience, getting close to their heroes. As previously mentioned, in rugby, football, cricket and netball, it's not unusual to see elite players on the sidelines for over an hour after the game has finished, signing autographs, taking selfies and chatting to fans. This is something you rarely see in men's sport. Fans can attend a whole season of WSL games for the price of one Premier League game. So there's plenty of opportunity to target those who love live football but perhaps can't afford to watch men's matches live. Women's football is also far more family-friendly with less antisocial crowd behaviour. In fact, the clubs often don't even specify home and away seating because separation isn't needed. As football pundit Ian Wright told me, what I do love about the women's game is the ambience of the fans. It's a whole different vibe to the way fans behave in the men's game. It's much better, more friendly. It feels lovely. It's the kind of atmosphere where you can bring your daughters to. One of the key rationales for increasing crowd sizes for women's sport is that spectators generate funds that can then be used to pay players and staff and build the sport. This includes the income from spectator ticket sales and spending on merchandise or food and drinks sold on match days, along with increased sponsorship in match programmes and hoardings to reach fans in the stadium. Offering a different fan experience from men's sport is something that is being explored by various teams and leagues. Head down to the south coast to watch Lewis FC Women, the first club in the world to equally invest in its male and female sides, and you'll enjoy a very special day with bubbly on tap in the bars, locally made vegan pies and live music. Opinions vary on the best approach to fill stadiums for women's sport. Some believe you should never give away free tickets as it devalues the product and then becomes harder to charge for attendance in the future. The theory also being that if people have paid even a small amount for their ticket, they will be more likely to attend on the day. This was certainly the case for the opening games of the 2019 FA WSL season. When more people paid for tickets to watch Manchester City versus Manchester United at the Etihad than watched Chelsea play newly promoted London rival Spurs at Stamford Bridge for free. The free Chelsea tickets were rapidly snapped up, but 15,000 who obtained tickets did not show up for the game. Another important reason for charging something for tickets is to generate income to help fund the women's game. 
as the AFLW has grown in popularity in Australia, officials have been criticised in the first two seasons for giving away free entry since the players' wages remained low as a result. Even before COVID-19, the world was changing and it was getting harder to get younger fans to sit and watch live sports events in their entirety. Changes in technology and the way in which sport is consumed may provide a huge opportunity for women's sport in terms of the development of live streaming and innovative methods of sharing, engaging content and telling stories. This is one place where women's sport might have an advantage. Without the history and tradition of men's sport and the dependence on enormous crowds to sustain it, women's sport can potentially be nimbler and pivot its offering for fans. Thank you so much for listening to the serialisation of my book Game On, The Unstoppable Rise of Women's Sport. If you'd like a copy, it's available in hardback and paperback in all good bookshops and online. The Game Changers podcast is free to listen to on all podcast platforms. Head over to fearlesswomen.co.uk to find out more about all of the incredible game changers I've spoken to in previous series. There are over a hundred of them, including elite athletes, journalists, coaches, scientists, broadcasters and CEOs. As well as listening to all the episodes on the website, you can find out more about the Women's Sport Collective, a free, inclusive network for all women working in sport. And you can register for the Fearless Women newsletter, a weekly review of the global developments in women's sport. Do come and say hello on social media, where you'll find me on LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter at Sue Anstis. Finally, if you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd be so grateful if you could do two things. Firstly, if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, I'd really appreciate it. And secondly, if there's anyone in your life, at home or at work, who you think might enjoy the podcast, please do let them know about it and help us spread the word about women's sport and the stories of these incredible game changers.